Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. We're not little men. We're not as much as we like to pretend, you know, and I like to sometimes pretend it's like, I could do anything and I will go through anything. I will push through anything. You can't do that all the time. You know, there's times where you need to slow down and recover. And that's actually where all your gains will come from is in the recovery. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life? It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, we have a little bit of a different episode for you. This is the first in what I hope will be many uh, in a Ask Me Anything format. So our AMAs, this is our inaugural AMA. And I have a very special co-host with me as well. Her name is Stephanie Major. And if you follow me uh, on the interwebs or on social media, you'll know why she was a the best and pretty much only choice in terms of having a co-host uh, to do this programming with. We get, I personally get hundreds of uh, emails all the time asking about a myriad of, of questions. One of the most popular ones is fasting, and that's what we are going to be doing a deep dive today. But Stephanie Major, or Major as we affectionately call her, has been my clinic director, my clinic operator. She has helped me launch online programs, and she has been with me through amazing times and, of course, been my support for more challenging times. She was one of the original people who had pushed me to do this podcast in the first place, and we just have a great banter, and she is one of the few people that can make me uh, ugly cry, uh, you know, just like laughing hysterically and losing control of my laughter um, because she is so funny and so brilliant. So. We are going to do a deep dive today in fasting. So lots of questions came in into our Facebook community. So if you're not already a, uh, a member of our Better Community on Facebook, you can just look us up. It's free to join. And what I like to do in that community is I like to, this is where I like to pull people and get questions. So we are going to be talking today about the comparison between time-restricted eating and fasting. We are going to be talking about PCOS and fasting. We are going to be talking about should you refuel in the morning? Should you fast? Um, you know, should you exercise fasted? Do you do you have a window for refueling post exercise? We're going to be talking about thyroid and fasting. So people with low uh, functioning, so hypothyroidism, and we dive into Hashimoto's as well. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune condition. We talk about how. Uh, some people notice hair loss and fasting, so we dive deep into how, uh, what some of the different stages of hair growth are and why you may notice 
uh, increased uh, hair loss when you are starting a fasting regimen, how to break an extended fast and how to keep some of the benefits going, uh, how do you know when to stop fasting, how do you fast when you travel, and I go into my personal regimen and my personal protocol for flying, whether it's east coast to west coast or west to east how often I do longer fasts. And then Major at the end uh, asked a question about, you know, how do we explain fasting to our children and do we have them do this with us? Great episode, lots of detailed information. Definitely go on a geeky magic carpet ride on this one. And if you like the episode, we would love to hear from you either in the Facebook Better Community or you can leave us a review on iTunes and uh, either a written review or we would love your five-star review if you feel so inclined to do so. So without further ado, please enjoy our first AMA on fasting. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. 
This is take two with our AMA. I wanted to introduce you to my co-host, Stephanie Major. Welcome, Steph. Thanks so much for having me, Steph. So we just, as a point of clarification, we look very similar. So when you see us, we both are, you know, dark hair, dark eyes, uh, same name. It has been a source of confusion for people for as long as I think I've known you. You are the only person that's ever made me genuinely question changing, legally changing my first name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's always like, hi, I'm Stephanie, and I'm also Stephanie. So we affectionately have started calling you Major uh, because you are a big deal. So your last name is very fitting, but also as a point of clarity. We also, you were the clinic director, uh, operator of uh, my clinic when we were... Mm -hmm in practice in Toronto. And uh, it was always really funny because people would be like, are you guys sisters? Do you remember? And you would all yeah. say, well, yeah, our parents were like the laziest people. <laughs> the laziest parents ever. <laughs> so I wanted, you know, you were the obvious choice for me when I was thinking about, you know, if we want to do these Ask Me Anythings, we get like hundreds and hundreds of questions every month. Uh, that come into the support email uh, and you've seen them. Uh, you've helped mm-hmm. me launch the Keto Clean program. You've like helped me run that. So uh, I thought it was a great continuation of our relationship to have mm-hmm. you as uh, the co-host of these AMAs. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing this with you. Me too. And I love that fasting is our first topic because you're actually the person that introduced me to fasting for the first time. And You've also lovingly educated me away from some fasting protocols that might not complement my physiology very well. So thank you for that. And I think this is a great topic. It was very popular in our better community. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a great topic to start start our AMA series. Awesome. Let's do it. Okay. So our first question is from Dawn, and she's looking to understand the comparison between time restricted eating and fasting. She's heard that no supplements or anything other than water for time-restricted eating because they can start the clock since your liver and gut would need to process these. She likes the thought of time-restricted eating, but she likes to take some supplements before bed and does a five-calorie, you know, like a work pre-workout drink in the morning before her workout. So from what I understand, that would be that would not be time-restricted eating. That would be a fast. Would love to know the benefits of both. Okay. So this is the perfect question to start off with because I think that the word fasting can mean so many different things. So Don, thank you for asking this. So what I think we can start off with is just qualifying what time-restricted eating is and how I contrast that with fasting. So TRE or time-restricted eating is basically reducing the hours in which you consume your food. So it's not changing what you eat per se, but just when you're eating it. So when somebody who has never, is new to the fasting world or is curious or is just you know, a newbie, this is typically where we start. And the easiest way to start a time-restricted eating protocol is to do it in a 12-hour, uh, like a 12-12. So what that means is you know, we have 24 hours in the day. So if you have a eating window of 12 hours, you are going to have a complimentary 12-hour fast. And the nice thing about that is it gets your, you know, your toes warm, so to speak, in the fasting pool. It's very easy to do because the 12 hours of fasting, most of that is happening overnight while you're sleeping. And it does, if you talk to someone like Sachin Panda, he will say that, yes, the second that you eat anything that requires any sort of digestive uh, activity that stimulates any digestive enzymes, that starts the clock. So for him, you know, a black coffee in the morning, 
the adaptogen that uh, Dawn talked about, her pre-workout drink, that would start the clock for her. So if you're going to start with a time-restricted eating protocol at a tw- in a 12-12 fashion, let's say the first thing you eat is at, you know, the adaptogen, you take it at six in the morning or six 30 in the morning, then that would mean that your last meal would happen between, you know, if it's six in the morning, you'd stop at six in the evening. If you start at six 30, it ends at six 30 in the evening. And the nice thing about that as well, when you, when you make your last meal a little earlier in the evening, it also allows for your stomach to empty. And this is sort of the next phase, and we'll we'll link out in the in the show notes. Uh, I did a I wrote an article on Medium. It was a twelve week guide to fasting. So starting from you know you've never done it before to uh, an extended fast. So we'll make sure that those are in the show notes. But the nice thing about once you've sort of mastered the twelve twelve, which is relatively easy, most people can do it without really blinking an eye, is adding on a night limiter. So making sure that when you're thinking about your eating, you are now eating your last meal three to four hours before you go to sleep. And this is, again, coming from uh, Sachin Panda's work around um, his, his, he does a lot of work with circadian biology and circadian rhythms. When you are, when you allow for the stomach to fully empty, you will have a better quality of sleep because your clocks, we have different clocks all through the body. We have a clock, a master clock in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then we have other peripheral clocks in the liver, the pancreas, the gut, you know, kidneys, et cetera. So if you take in a large bolus of food, if you take in, you know, if you have a glass of wine with some chips or something, you're watching a movie in the evening, your liver, which is a peripheral clock is going to say, oh, we just got in all this energy. It's time to rev up the system versus your brain, which is now detecting, you know, a decrease in light outside. So there's going to almost be this, um, uh, this dissonance between the two, uh, between the two clocks. So I love the night limiter as, as a next step. And then from there, I'd pretty quickly go into like a tighter eating window, like an eight-hour eating window. And that's usually the baseline for, there are a couple exceptions, but for most people, I think that's how most people should be eating. So you have an eight-hour eating window and then a complimentary 16-hour fast. A couple of reasons for that. One, I think you should always be a little bit hungry at some point every day. If you haven't listened to my episode with uh, Dr. David Sinclair, we talk about some of the reasons why, like sirtuin activation and longe- there's these longevity genes that get turned on. So I, I really love the idea of being a little bit hungry uh, every single day. It also just activates these, like I was saying, activates these sirtuins, keeps us younger for longer. And then that's sort of time-restricted eating in a nutshell. So we sort of have this 12-12, we have a night limiter, we have like a 16-8. That's not what I would necessarily call fasting. Fasting uh, would be, in my books, the way I would define it would be 24 hours or longer. So uh, an OMAD or one meal a day, uh, an extended fast, like 48 hour, 72 hour, 96 hour, those are all fasting. And there's many different ways that you can fast. So you can do fasting water only. Uh, you can do it as a non-caloric liquid fast. So things like you're still having liquids, but they do have some calories. So you know, it might be bone broth or soups that you're having. And then there's also uh, a caloric restrictive, mo- like the fasting mimetic, like the Walter Longo's Prolon would be a fasting mimetic diet where you're practicing some method of caloric restriction for a certain amount of time. So the caloric restriction can be 40 to 60% of your regular caloric intake. 
So those are kind of the ways that I would distinguish between a comparison between time-restricted eating and fasting. Of course, fasting, because you are abstaining from food for a longer period of time, the benefits are going to be greater. So things like you're going to have a greater drop in insulin, you're going to have greater activation of the sirtuins, you're going to have autophagy, which is basically cellular cleaning, you know, cleaning up of debris. You're going to have activation of BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is often called the miracle grow of the brain. And I often, you know, tongue-in-cheek like to say, if there's an organ that you want big and thick, it's your brain, right? So we want to keep your brain, you know, we want to promote healthy brain aging over the course of your life. So, and other, other things, there's lipid profile improvement, you know, ketone production, and it amps up growth hormone, all this kind of stuff. So, and there was another question about what did she say about something about L-theanine and magnesium? So as far, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. those don't have a caloric load, but I'm willing to be corrected on that if anybody knows any difference. So I don't think she's taking those in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, my thinking around that is to help Before her facilitate bed, yeah. sleep. So that's not really going to affect her circadian clock so much as that adaptogen that she's taking in the morning. Perfect. Okay. So moving on, Brian and Sarah... How do you maximize your fast while working out in the AM? That is, do I need to refuel within 30 to 60 minutes of exercise? Do I need to eat after? This is probably- question. This question comes up so often. So thank you for asking, um, asking that. I think that there's a common misconception that we have this. It used to be, I remember when I was training for my fitness competition that you had like 30 minutes. That would, my, my coach would tell me this. You have 30 minutes and you have to get your food in. Like your muscles are sensitized to taking up proteins and carbs. And then sort of moved to like two hours. What we know now is that the timing of your post-workout meal is almost irrelevant as long as you were eating within 24 hours of that exercise. So it's largely irrelevant whether the food that you're taking, if you take a pre-workout, if it's taken during the workout, if it's taken after, the muscle is more sensitive to taking up uh, protein and carbs for about 24 hours after that, that bout of exercise which kind of explains why we see this remodeling of muscle, this hypertrophy of muscle over time, right? So it's really independent of that time, you know, that proximity dependent feeding pattern. So the short answer is you don't need to refeed after 30 to 60 minutes. But I will say that the type of exercise, depending on what you're doing, the type of exercise that you're doing is, is going to drive different types of muscle growth. So in the case of resistance training, so if you're lifting you know, heavy weights or I like to use my muscle workouts also as my cardio because I can't stand, I always feel like I'm a hamster when I get on a cardio machine. I almost just feel like it's just like a never ending mm-hmm. uh, treadmill of torture. So I will typically do supersets and I will do endurance training with, with resistance, like 15 to 20 reps, but then I'll also do really heavy weights. So, you know, like 60 to 60 to 70% of my one rep maximum, I'll do like five or six, five, you know, four to five reps of that. When you're doing heavy resistance training, you're going to drive hypertrophy of the muscle, which I find personally, when I have that workout, I'm hungrier um, versus endurance type exercises, which are going to drive more mitochondrial biogenesis and different things. So just a little extra little bit in there for the type of exercise really does matter. But the short answer is no, you don't need to refuel like 15 to 20 minutes after you're, after you're eating. Amazing. 
that makes things so much more efficient if you don't have to be thinking about that immediately after your workout. Oh, actually, let me add in one more thing. When she does eat her next meal, uh, Mm -hmm. it should have protein in it and a minimum of 20 grams. So a minimum of 20 grams of good quality protein to be able to drive that muscle protein synthesis from her diet. Excellent. Okay. This is another one that comes up all the time. PCOS and fasting. Is it good? Let's actually break down PCOS just a little bit. When you can understand the disorder, I think you can make better uh, decisions around what is right or wrong. Now, of course, PCOS is really complex. Uh, There's a lot of points in the pathway where things can go awry. But when you look at PCOS in general, it is a problem of excess growth. So what we see is polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's what PCOS stands for. We see fluid-like uh, fluid-filled cysts all over the ovaries. So this is except this has been driven by excess growth. So there's a you know we see a lot of symptoms of excess androgens. We see lots of testosterones. A woman may complain of uh, hair on her face or on her chest, uh, balding patterns that mimic you know male patterns of balding. But when we look at it, often with the women that I've worked with that have had PCOS, there's often insulin at the root cause of this as well. So insulin is a driver of growth. So anytime you have carbohydrates or proteins, insulin is a nutrient sensor. So it will respond if you have carbohydrates, your insulin level goes up. If you have excess proteins, your insulin levels are going to go up. So if you are eating a very processed, what I would call a standard American or standard North American diet, which is a lot of processed foods, a lot of high carbohydrates, you are probably driving this hyperinsulinemic state. And there's a couple of things as a woman that this is going to be devastating for you. So the first is when we think about your cycle, one of the things that a lot of women with PCOS complain of is that they either have irregular periods or they're anovulatory, meaning that they don't have they don't release an egg or their their periods are not consistent enough. So this is an issue of fertility, right? If you want to be fertile and the, the goal is to be able to procreate, you have to sort of know when you're fertile or not because you have this sort of short window of time in your cycle. So when your insulin levels are high, if you're consuming too much carbohydrates or proteins that are driving that insulin level, those insulin levels up, a hormone in your cycle called luteinizing hormone is going to be elevated throughout. So we are going to do, Major, you and I need to do an AMA on women's hormones specifically. How funny that I thought that hormones only mattered as a teenager. I thought that that's the only time that hormones yeah. <laughs> matter. And then, <laughs> nope, they matter your entire life. They are incredibly important. As, yeah. you know. So it's going to be a great topic. I see the inbox hormone questions asked all the time. So All the time. I mean, I used to think the same thing when I was, I was like, I just need to get rid of this acne. Like, just tell me yeah. how to get rid of the acne and I'm good. I don't care about anything. But the when we look at this in terms of your menstrual cycle, the luten, I always, this is how I remember things. Luteinizing hormones like that annoying uncle or aunt that comes over for the holidays and sees you and you're at the dinner table and they like smack the back of your back and they're like, nice to see you. And they hit you so hard that you kind of spit out your food. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all... I mean, at least I have an uncle like that. So <laughs> that's kind of what luteinizing hormone does, right? It surges right before ovulation. So that follicle basically spits out the mature egg so that it, it and then that egg is, you know, waits around for uh, fertilization. But if your LH levels are high throughout your cycle, you're never going to have that relative surge. So you're never going to be able to release the egg. So this is one reason why it's important for a woman 
who's dealing with PCOS to be able to reduce her insulin levels. And I'm going to tie this up in a neat bow in a second as it relates to fasting. But when you fast, obviously your insulin levels drop so that now the consistent application of fasting for a woman with PCOS, either you know multiple times during the week or quarterly or what have you, is going to allow for that ebb and flow, that attenuation and elevation of her LH so that she can actually ovulate. And the other issue that we hear, and I touched on it before where this excess androgens is the more insulin that you're consuming, the lower, you, we have something in our bodies called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG, which kind of just does what it sounds like. It binds sex hormones. Mm-hmm. So the more insulin you have, the less that binding globulin you have. So the more te- free testosterone you have sort of floating around, and that's what can possibly lend to those masculinization, like those, uh, you know, the excess hair and the male pattern balding and the weight gain through the abdomen, that sort of thing. So fasting is a beautiful tool. I love using fasting for women with PCOS because those women, their bodies are acting almost more male anyway. And we know that men very powerfully respond to fasting. So at least for a woman with PCOS, at the very least, she would be doing some sort of time-restricted feeding schedule every day. I would probably also be recommending a lower carbohydrate macronutrient ratio for her. Of course, you know, this is depending on the severity and her age and all that kind of stuff. And this is something that she can probably discuss with her PCP or her primary. But I would also be looking at doing longer fasts either, you know, once a month and potentially 24-hour fasts, like several of them through the week. Incredible. Okay. So this is Ivy Marie. She's saying the week before her period, she struggles with fast for 12 hours and she craves carbs and gets headaches. Should mm-hmm. I not fast the week before or should I up my calorie intake in the eight hour window? I'm wanting to know what my body is doing and needing leading up to my period. Yeah. So this is going to, we're going to do a deep dive into what I like to call menstruation for gains in our next AMA, but let's talk about what happens the week before your period. So this is very common for women leading up to their period to have any sort of symptoms exacerbated, bloating, poor sleep, uh, premenstrual, like more emotional, any sort of pro-inflammatory, you know, we feel bloated, we feel full, we feel like I even notice sometimes my fingers, you know, my rings don't fit quite as they should. We're just an insatiable hunger. Yes, or an insatiable hunger. And that is because of our friend progesterone. Mm. So if we assume, and just for ease of this example, we'll assume that your period is 28 days, although we know that there's variance in terms of what we consider normal. So anything from like 26 to 30, call it 32 or 33, but just because 28 evenly divides into seven. Around day 21 is when we start to see progesterone rising. Progesterone is a potent stimulator of your appetite. It slows down your bowels and it can also affect your mood and it can drive cravings. So this is why Ivy Marie is saying, I crave carbs. I potentially get headaches. She's probably noticing that her bowel movements are slower. And any woman can kind of tell you this, right? A couple of, you know, the week before your period, you're just hungrier. So uh, we'll talk about each phase you know, this is in the luteal phase of her, like the last part of her cycle before she, before the bleed starts, before her menstruation starts. We'll talk about this in depth in our next time together. But for her specifically to answer this question now, 
I would say just be a little gentler with your body. You may not want to do an extended fast. I never do an extended fast in the week before my period. It is the hardest time Mm -hmm. to fast. And I'm also a little bit more lenient in terms of my TRE. So normally my my time-restricted feeding schedule is somewhere between, I don't know, like anywhere from four to six hours is what I find works best for me. In that week, it's usually back to like a 16-8. Like I'm usually eating over an eight-hour, maybe even a nine-hour or 10-hour period, depend, uh, depending on you know, how, much stress, how much stress I've had that month, what my sleep is like, et cetera. It's okay to be a little gentler with yourself during this time and to understand that progesterone is driving the bus right now, hopefully, uh, that you have sufficient progesterone that this is happening. So I would say stay away from the extended fasting. Uh, the TRE, you can you know, be a little bit more lax in terms of your feeding window. And I would have a lot of resistant starches. So I know that this wasn't part of her question, but one of the things that can really help with her cravings is consuming resistant starches. So this is another big question uh, that we get. What's a resistant starch? It's a starch that resists digestion. So green banana flour, green plantain flour, raw potato starch, things like cold rice and cold potatoes in moderation can also help as well. I love what you said about being a little gentler with yourself because it's so rewarding when you complete a fast, when you set you know, set your mind to completing one and you, and you accomplish it and you feel so rewarded. But if you're doing it at the time that is the most difficult and you, you're not able to complete it, it can be kind of, it's a crushing blow and it's, it's hard to get back from that or attempt another fast the next time when you just think, oh, I'm not, a- I'm not able to do it. I can't yeah. do it. So yeah, I think that's agreed. really kind to do it in the time that will benefit you the most and is, you know, easier and, and, uh, and a way that just honors your biology. Yes. Like we're not little men. We're not as much as we like to pretend, you know, and I like to sometimes pretend it's like, <laughs> I can do anything and I will go through anything. I will push through anything. You can't do that all the time. You know, there's times where you need to slow down and recover. And that's actually where all your gains will come from is in the recovery, but all the type A personalities that are listening. And I'm speaking to myself here as well. Mm-hmm is if you continue, if you just push your head, like put your head down and push through, like that's actually where you gain weight because you're just in this stressed out state all the time and you're not giving yourself a chance to, to heal. All right. So this question is from Jenny, but I can just hear all of the women chanting together because she starts it off with women. What about women? <laughs> I hear <laughs> yeah. all kinds of yeah. conflicting stories about whether women should or should not fast. Mm. or when they should, when they shouldn't, that it messes with your cortisol and other hormones and can potentially cause adrenal fatigue, or that you should fast at certain times of the month or should in other times around your cycle. It's so confusing. Help. Mm. I actually do time-restricted eating just intuitively, but am I messing up my hormones? Yeah. Great question, Jenny. And Mm -hmm. thank you for asking that for all the women that are like, but what about us? Um, I would say in general, uh, when we think about fasting, it, and I've, I've sort of been touching on this a little bit with the previous question around you know, progesterone and leading up, to, leading up to your period, why you may have more cravings. We are not little men. We are very different and we have ebbs and flows. So when we sort of look at the different acts in a woman's life, we're sort of pre-menstrual, that's sort of act one. And then for about 40 years, you know, we're different every single day for 40 years because we have this menstrual cycle for reproduction. And then act three is, you know, our peri and postmenopausal years. So we do see some gender specific differences when it comes to fasting. Now there, I will say that there's not a ton of research around 
females in fact we are often excluded from the literature unfortunately so this is where the clinical application or finding a clinician to work with is really important because there's one thing to be able to look at information which is in the research it's another thing to understand how to clinically apply this in an appropriate setting so i say this with a caveat i'm going to talk to you about some of the studies that have been really influential for me, and this is what I've talked to you about, uh, Major, uh, you know, privately and sort of off, off camera in terms of how we're different. So some of the studies that we're going to link to all these studies in the show notes, so you guys can take a look for yourself, and I'd love to hear your comments on them. A lot of them are done in rodents. So this is uh, the other thing before we kind of dive into it. We are also not rodents. We are humans. So there's some difficulties in extrapolation because obviously we are much more complex than rats. Uh, although sometimes you can make the argument sometimes that we're not, but you know, in terms of physiology, looking at rat studies are not the big picture. We still need more studies for uh, looking at non-obese women. Mm. So let's talk about the rodent studies first. So mm-hmm. when we look at when we do when we look at rodents who have either done alternate day fasting or caloric restriction. So caloric restriction uh, in the studies that I'm talking about, they looked at 20% or 40% CR. They looked at the differences between the males and the females. And what we noticed was the males, they had improved insulin sensitivity, which is a good thing. Their waking and their sleep patterns were not affected. So they didn't have more trouble falling asleep. Their their sleep-wake cycles were maintained. They were more fertile, so they increased these gonadal uh, transcription factors, these genes that activate, that are, that are involved in fertility, and they had improved lipid profiles. So these are all amazing things, and actually when we look online, when we look at experts, they, they will often cite these reasons as why fasting is... Uh, superior. And I've, I've mentioned some of these as well. We talked about BDNF and we talked about insulin and lipid prop. All these things are important. But when we look at the females in these rodent studies, what they found was that the female rats were more prone to masculinization, meaning that their ovaries shrunk. When they underwent 20% caloric restriction, we started to see irregular cycling. With 40% caloric restriction, they ceased menstruating altogether. They became hyper alert and they had problems sleeping. So their learning and memory improved and they were awake for longer. And this actually makes sense when we think about females in general, humans, rats, because we are the ones that procreate, we are much more defensive of our fat stores. So if there is a lack of nutrient, then we are going to be, we are going to probably want to forage over a larger geographical area than we otherwise may have been doing in the past. So this might be an explanation for why the learning and memory and the sleep patterns were disrupted. Same thing, their adrenal, like their adrenals uh, got bigger. So there's all these things that are like, that sound just horrifying and and terrible. And when we look at comparable ones with human females, again, same thing, like the alternate day fasting in women showed poor glucose tolerance and their male counterparts, um, no change in insulin sensitivity in non-obese women. And um, we didn't see this effect with the guys. So, you know, the, the question then becomes, okay, so if I'm a non-obese woman, what am I supposed to do? Right. The, the data is re- like when you are obese, male or female, the data is clear in terms of fasting and the benefits that it's going to impart to you. So if you are overweight, if you have excess adiposity, 
fasting is going to be a very, it's probably the most powerful weight loss tool on the planet. So that's going to be really great. The cheapest, you are, cheapest and easiest. Cheapest, easiest, <laughs> diet agnostic, right? It doesn't care mm-hmm. if you're paleo or vegan or keto or whatever. You can apply it anywhere. But it's it's when we get into women and the new and the different hormonal landscapes and potential areas of derangement that we can that we can experience. And then even further, you know, we are, I think we're completely unclear for, you know, a woman like myself or or you, where we don't have we're not obese and we don't necessarily have any hormonal issues, what the benefits of fasting are. And I don't I think that the literature is is kind of out on it. I don't think we really know. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So I want to, I know that we're doing another AMA on different hormonal categories for both men and women. But there's one that I definitely want to touch on right now that I think most women, you are this until you are proven otherwise. And that is what I call HPA axis dysfunction. So she was, I think she called it adrenal fatigue. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a stickler for nomenclature. I don't like that term. It is not a diagnosis in any way. And it's a bit of a misnomer. So when you say adrenal fatigue, what you're sort of implying is that the adrenals are petering out. And what is more accurate is that the communication pathway, like the brain, the hypothalamus, which is what the H stands for, the pituitary gland, the P, and the adrenals, that axis, that pathway is what is being overtaxed. So when we talk about chronic low-grade stress, and this is where I say every woman is HPA axis, you know, there's some sort of dysfunction until proven otherwise. You know, we think about physical stress, how many women sit all day, poor posture, don't move enough, you know, chemical stress from your diet, emotional stress from either work or home. This is a very pro-inflammatory, pro-cytokine sort of lifestyle. And when we think about adding another stressor, albeit, you know, a hormetic stress, a good stress like fasting, that can sort of be like the straw that breaks the camel, you know, what is that saying? The straw that breaks the camel's back or whatever. Yeah. I have no idea what that means, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the last, like one more stress added on top of all of these stressors is the thing that sort of breaks. Camel life. No, can't do it. Yeah. Hashtag camel life. Yeah. So it's like this, this like allostatic load, you know, that's like the, that's the appropriate term where you're contributing or you're over contributing to this allostatic load. And then the whole house of cards, you know, sort of crumbles. So for a woman who is not dealing with any hormonal issues, I think that you can play around with extended fasting the way that I do. For someone who has chronic low-grade stress, 
you know, the time restricted eating is something I'm a fan of. I think we can all be practicing that, but it really is important for you to be doing any sort of extended fast with uh, being monitored by your, your primary care provider, your PCP or a trusted healthcare um, provider where you're monitoring yourself because fasting is adrenergic. It's going to drive up your cortisol levels. And if you already have a lot of cortisol that's being uh, produced because of your lifestyle, then that's going to be, it can be counter, it can be counterproductive. All right. So lots of things to consider as a woman. Yeah. We're just extra. We're just extra like that. We are just, yeah. In the best way. In the best way. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes a little bit more digging, but once you get to the thing, you know, that's why I always say like females are like the original biohackers, right? Like we, mm-hmm. you know, we will do anything to feel better. So yeah. So this is another one that is considering hormones. Does fasting help with Hashimoto's low thyroid function? And if so, how do we know if medications should be adjusted if not symptomatic? How often should you have your thyroid tested? These are great questions. And I know we have Melissa Ramos coming up on the podcast. She's going to be talking about uh, hashies and thyroid. And we're going to be ta- we're doing a little spin on essential oils, but she is uh, very much a thyroid expert. But let's, let's talk first about why fasting may be appropriate for someone with low thyroid function or with hashies. So Normally, when we when the thyroid gets a signal from the pituitary, it will so the pituitary is going to release something called thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH. The thyroid now is going to stimulate something called TPO, so thyroid peroxidase. That is going to create the two thyroid hormones that we have, T4, T3. Okay. So T4 needs to be con- so T3 is the active form. T4 is is more inactive. And I think if my memory serves me correctly, in the thyroid, you're only going to get like 7% of T3 produced there. I think 94% is T4. So you have to now, in the periphery, convert T4 to T3. And this is where hashies uh, and people with low thyroid function can go awry because we, can, we convert T4 to T3 in the liver, the muscles, the heart, the uh, nerve cells. There's also, T4 is also converted into... Um, T3 uh, sulfur and T3 acetic acid, which are technically inactive, but they can be converted into the active form of T3 in the gut. So you can just from just from kind of looking at that, we know that with someone with low thyroid function or hashies, we want to be looking at integrity of the gut, so low gut permeability. We want to be looking at the liver uh, in terms of facilitating or upregulating the detoxification pathways in the liver. And then of course, when we're thinking about efficiency with glucose, we want to be thinking about potentially doing either a high fat, low carb or a fasting type protocol so that we can up level insulin regulation and glucose regulation as well. Let me give you a quick example here. So a lot of people with hashies, they complain about brain fog Mm -hmm. and poor memory. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why that is, is because the person with Hashimoto's the, with that low thyroid function, you are going to have a slower uptake of glucose into the cells. So that means that your production of energy is going to be lower. When you're fasting, and this is why I really love fasting for someone with low thyroid or hashies, is it activates those nutrient sensors in the body. So insulin is falling. We've talked about that in, in the context of PCOS. With someone with hashies, you're going to activate something called AMP kinase. 
So that is basically a sensor. If it detects low energy levels in the cell, it's going to ramp up the glucose. It's going to try to get the glucose into the cell so that you can drive more energetic um, production. It's like a little so fast- cheerleader. It's your cheerleader. It's like, go, 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 go. Exactly right. So that's one mechanism where we have low thyroid or hashies that can benefit from fasting. The other thing is that it'll help with your gut permeability. So remember we were talking about the T3S and the T, I think the T3, I think they denoted as AC for acetic acid. That can be converted into active T3 in the gut. So you want to have really good gut function. So making sure that there's no co-infections, making sure that your gut permeability is on, is on par. So I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. And we've had in our Keto Clean program, you know, so many people that have had low thyroid function or Hashis see massive improvements with even just a TRE, even just a 16-8 protocol where they're, they have an eight-hour eating window. So a big fan of it for, uh, for thyroid function. And I think there was a question around medication. Yeah, she was asking if, you, if you're not symptomatic and you're taking medication, how do you know when that needs to be updated or changed? So thyroid medication is all weight-based. So if you're using fasting as a tool, it's likely that you're going to you know, lose weight. It's one, you know, we've said it's the most, one of the most powerful ways that you lose weight on the planet. So your medication probably is going to be changed or should be adjusted down every 20 to 30 pounds that you lose. So that, but that's something that you have to talk about with your, you have to talk with your doctor about because, you know, your cardiovascular uh, state, your age, the severity of your symptoms, how long you've had it, these things are all going to play into your dosing. But that's something that's, that's a conversation for you and your, and your, and your MD. And, and she was also asking how often the labs or the testing should be done for your thyroid. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that there's some. Ver- I think that there's going to be some variability for everybody. I would say, at a at a very bare minimum, I'd probably look at it once every six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Jacqueline is asking how to deal with fasting and hair loss. As I take a swig of my water, there. Thank you. Uh- <laughs> it's a topic that's close to our heart. <laughs> it's like we yes, let's talk about our hair. The you know our crown. Yeah, this is another common question with, we get this in keto as well. I hear this a lot with the ketogenic diet um, and fasting. It is not that the fasting is causing the hair loss per se, or that keto is causing the hair loss per se. It's just whenever you restrict any macronutrient, so in keto, you'll, you'll be restricting your carbs, with fasting, you're restricting everything. There's an increased stress around that. So your body is going to Uh, repurpose its energy. And it's not going to focus on your hair, but it's going to focus on things like your brain and your heart and your liver, like these vital functions, right? So this is temporary. So when you start fasting, or uh, I've seen this also on keto, it is a temporary change. You may notice like kind of clumps of hair falling out, um, but it tends to return somewhere between, you know, three to six months, you'll notice that that falling out stops. Partly because when we think about the different phases of hair growth, there's three phases. And I know this because obviously hair is very important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have this growth phase or the antigen phase. This is anywhere from two to six years. It's like your hair is going to grow one centimeter every 28 to 30 days or so. Then we have this sort of short phase that follows that. This is where it uh, it, it is just a transitional stage where the growth stops somewhere around two to two to three weeks. 
And then there's this dormant stage that follows that called the telogen phase. So that's when that's in this resting phase. So when you expose yourself to extreme stress and fasting is a great tool, but it is a hormetic stress, mm-hmm. you can prematurely move into this telogen, uh, this telogen phase. And that can last at a maximum of about three months. And after which you'll go into that growth phase again. So that's why I will always say like in the beginning, you may notice that your hair is going to fall out a little bit because of this caloric restriction that you're, that you're undergoing, but know that your, your body is going to get back into that normal hair growth again. So it's mainly the change in the caloric intake that's, that's causing the, the hair to go into that dormant phase, but it, but it changes. Okay. So they don't need to change anything about the protocol. They just need to be patient, mm-hmm. trust keep moving forward. Trust. I promise. Yeah. I promise. If my hair kept falling out, I would not be a proponent of fasting. Yeah. It's, they're like, what? I'm trying to do something for my health. And then right. this odd symptom and, you know, identity, your hair identity is, is so important. Is it's there anything important. they can take to sort of supplement during this time? Or is Oh, there- great question. Yeah. yeah. So I would definitely make sure that you are, you're like that your electrolytes are on point. So making sure that you're taking uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, Another really great supplement, obviously, is collagen. So uh, you can get that from either powder supplementation you get in your bone broth. That has been like low collagen has been uh, shown to be related to early hair loss, to hair thinning, to hair graying. So, and of course, as a former practicing chiropractor, collagen is super important for your, I mean, hair, skin, and nails, 100%, but your bones, right? The discs, the integrity of the ligaments. So collagen is really important. Biotin is another another supplement uh, that I really like. So you can take it in a supplement or you can get it in um, uh, things like uh, eggs, like yolks, uh, avocado, salmon, spinach, that kind of thing. When you start eating again. Great. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and zinc. Pardon me. Sorry. Zinc as well. Yeah. Throw in zinc there too. Yes. Jamie is asking, if you're doing an extended fast, how do you prepare beforehand? What's the best way to eat after the fast to maintain all the health benefits of fasting? Another common question, a eh, major. Yeah, we get this a no, lot. No, it really is. And you're the perfect person because I know how you love to be prepared for things. And I know that you prepare before fast. So this is a great question for you to be answering. Yeah. So there's a couple of things you want to be considering when you're going into an extended fast. So if you, the way that I classify extended fast, just as a quick reminder, something longer than 24 hours. The easiest way to do it is we want to be restricting. I like to sort of do keto, like a ketogenic diet moving into uh, the extended, like the week before. I know Peter Atia, he calls this the nothing burger. So he has like the, (laughs) he sort of sandwiches keto, you know, on either end of his fast, which I, I think that's such a brilliant name is the nothing burger. But what we want to be thinking about when we're going into a fast is one, you want to get into ketosis before the fast and potentially extend the benefits of being in ketosis after the cessation of the fast. You want to minimize your discomfort, especially if you're doing like a three-day or longer fast, your organs are going to shrink and don't make the rookie mistake that I did and have a big steak dinner because you will pay for it. And then we also want to make sure that your minerals are in check. So super important to, we want to avoid something called refeeding syndrome. So if you've been if you've been fasting for four or five plus days, and then you reintroduce foods in that sort of four to seven uh, day window post fast, if you reintroduce them too quickly, your cells are going to be uh, there. It's going to uh, trigger the synthesis of of glycogen, fats, and protein in the cell at the expense of 
potassium, magnesium, phosphorus. So this can be catastrophic for you. So we want to make sure that your minerals are in check sort of during the fast, but also as you are introducing foods again. So I really like when I'm breaking my fast to have, uh, I like to have bone broth. Uh, so making sure that you're getting all of the minerals from the bone and I make my own bone broth and we can, we can link out to the recipe that I, uh, that I love, but you can also achieve this by just sometimes when I'm, when I'm lazy, I'll just get those, um, those, what are those little squares? The little, the bouillon, uh, like a bouillon cube. Yeah. Yeah. The bouillon cubes. I'll just put that in some water and drink that or just generally, generally soups for the first day or two so that things are really, they're cooked really well. It's already in liquid form. So it's easier for your body to make use of the energy. Uh, And even like, I would stay away from meats until, you know, if you've done, I remember when I was doing, um, I did a five day fast last year, which was just a little long for me, but I only, I waited like three days after the fast to have meat because it just felt like it would be too heavy. Or I put the meat in soup that, so it had been cooked thoroughly. It was soft, you know, it was easy for me to, easy for me to digest. So it's not the good, it's not the time for that big cheat meal once you're done a fast and you know sort of considering the end of a fast not when you start eating but maybe give yourself a little bit of extra time and say the fast is over once you've introduced like a few a few foods back in because 100%. I think people think I'm done it's over give me give me everything plates of food celebrate. It's time for the tacos. And I did that. I was like, Oh my gosh, let's have, I had this. I, we were, I remember we were moving into uh, the house that we're living in now. Mm -hmm. It was a five day fast. We were moving all day. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to break the fast. And I had this huge Cobb salad and I was just, and Cobb salad is like, you know, it's all solid, right? Heavy protein. There's like the bacon, the cheese, the chicken, the eggs, all that stuff. I was bowled over. So soups for the win, bouillon, bouillon cubes or bone broth for the first day or so. And then just, and that'll also volumetrically also gently stretch out your stomach as well, right? Because your organs shrink when you're fasting, your stomach is smaller. So you can't actually hold the same volume of food as when you're in a fed state. Right. And then maybe getting ready for a fast, make sure that you don't have some big celebration coming up or, you know, especially if it's the first one that you're doing, I think you really need to look at the calendar and kind of plan the best day for you. Mm -hmm. Typically for me, it's always better to start on a Monday so that I can fast during the week. You're really busy, you're working. And then it's not kind of that weekend time when you're socializing and with family and and exactly, exactly. Yeah. I love that. All right. And then she's also asking, are there signs or signals to know when to stop an extended fast? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the number one rule is to do it safely. Mm -hmm. So back to that example that I was just sharing with you when I was, um, we were moving, we were lifting heavy furniture, it had been five days and I was just, I just started to feel off might've been just because I was exerting myself or the stress of moving. You know, they always say like the two biggest stresses in life are divorce and moving. And I had moved like twice in that year. So this was just sort of the you know the tail end of that. I think that this is first, if you're going to do an extended fast as a disclaimer, you really should be working with somebody who can help monitor your, your blood work, your parameters to make sure that everything is safe. But you also know right? So this is, this is irrespective of hunger. Like hunger is going to ebb and flow during an extended fast. Like, you know, it's kind of going to come at the same time as you're used to eating. So I typically tend to eat around 11 o'clock. I'm typically hungriest between 11 and three. So I know that when I'm doing an extended fast, that's the time where I need to throw myself into my work and be distracted. 
So hunger comes and goes, but if it is hunger, first you've, you've ruled out that it's not thirst and that it's not electrolyte imbalance, right? So you're when you are fasting, you still need to be taking in a lot of liquids. You need to be making sure that your salt levels or your electrolyte uh, your electrolytes are in balance. If you've ruled out that it's not salt, if it's not you know a salt deficiency or that you're not thirsty and you just have this persistent nagging feeling of being unwell, there's nothing wrong with stopping it. You know, I've, there's been times when I've set out on a five day, like I've said, okay, I'm going to do a five day fast. And I made it to like two days. One time I stopped it at three days because it just, for whatever reason, like time of the month uh, for me, or the amount of stress that I had that month, the amount of travel that I had done, I think really honoring your biology and becoming attuned to when you feel right and wrong uh, is one, actually one of the benefits of, of fasting is you will get to know when you don't feel the way that you should. So for me, you know, I guess I'm kind of rambling on here, but I would say, know that you're going to feel hungry, make sure that you've ruled out that you're not thirsty or that you have a salt or that you have a, a electrolyte imbalance. And if you still feel unwell, then cut the shame and just cut the fast. Dizziness, would that, was that a normal um, feeling during a fast or is that a sign to, to kind of, you know, cut it up maybe a little short? I would cut it, you know, if you're feeling dizzy, lightheaded, you can't focus, brain foggy, you know, while those are, those can be like, he- like headaches are, are very common when you first start fasting, especially in that first 24 to 48 hours, mm-hmm. but dizziness is not normal. So I would, I would definitely be thinking about cutting it if you're feeling dizzy. Okay. And then Shays from Alabama. This is another super common question. My question is, does bulletproof coffee using ghee or butter break a fast or not since it is strictly fat? I've read so many conflicting opinions. Again, if I could rate the amount of times that, like if I could count the amount of times we've been asked this question, it's in the hundreds. Um, Mm -hmm, Yeah. I'm glad that this question came up. So I think that when you're thinking about what breaks a fast, you have to be thinking about what your goal is surrounding the fast. So if your goal, if you are fasting for an extended period of time or you're doing a time-restricted eating protocol, if your goal is caloric restriction, right? So you're trying to initiate some uh, autophagy, you're trying to activate some sirtuin uh, activation, some you're trying to maybe use it as a weight loss tool, you know, you want to be mindful of the calories that you're going to be ingesting from if it's, I think she said, did she give a caloric number for that or no? No, she didn't. No. Okay. So, you know, bulletproof coffee is somewhere between 200 and I guess how big the cup of coffee is. It can go up from there, but let's call it like 300 calories. You know, if your goal is caloric restriction, then you can just take that into account into your total calories for that day. And it can still be a model of caloric. I've fasted um, for days just having one cup of bulletproof coffee uh, in the morning. So I'll be kind of like a non-caloric liquid fast. If your goal is to improve the the permeability of your gut Mm -hmm. and to allow your gut to rest, then anything that you put in that stimulates digestion in any way is going to be considered breaking your, even a cup of, you know, black coffee, because you are, you are trying to digest the calories that you've ingested. So if your goal is weight loss and you are applying a model of caloric restriction, I'd say it probably doesn't break your fast. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to improve your gut health and integrity uh, of the lining, I'd say it probably does. 
All right. And the, oh, the, I love this question. And this is something that benefits me so much is when I travel with you, you are such a master at <laughs> knowing when to fast and uh, how to do it the best time, especially when we're, we're flipping over to the other coast. Mm-hmm. So do you fast when you travel, Dr. Stephanie? Always. Mm-hmm. I always, well, first to avoid airplane food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's like the, one airplane of the primary. <laughs> <laughs> the worst, but us being on the East coast, I do have a couple of different sort of tips and tricks for flying West. So whenever we go to, whenever we fly to California and I'm flying to Vancouver tomorrow, actually, I will fast the entire day on the East coast. And then I will eat an early dinner, uh, when I arrive in, um, you know, we're usually flying to LA or San Diego, or in this case, Vancouver. So somewhere around four or five o'clock Pacific time, which is seven or eight o'clock Eastern time. So that's much later than when I normally eat dinner here, but it helps me adjust to the time there a lot faster. So I will have an espresso in the morning. So for example, tomorrow I'm flying out at two o'clock, we go out to Vancouver. So I'm going to have an espresso and water in the morning. I'll have an espresso right before we head out to the airport fast all the way to Van City. And then we're going to have dinner, I think it's like six o'clock or 6.30 with some friends there. So the reason why that helps me is an East Coaster who flies to the West Coast a lot knows that come evening on the Pacific, you know, on the West Coast, you're just dead. Like at four Mm -hmm. o'clock, I'm like, okay, it's time for me to go to bed now because my bedtime is soon. But when you eat a later dinner, you know, in the same way that it can wreck your sleep normally it just because you have that dissonance between that master clock and your liver because you've eaten that later meal it allows me to stay up a little bit longer and get used to the time like pacific time a little easier so i like to do that and then when i fly back i will typically eat first thing in the morning so i will start eating on toronto time again i'll start eating on uh, eastern time again so i'll have you know a meal in the morning so by the time I can remember my flights like from San Diego to Toronto. I think the flight leaves at, um, is it 11 o'clock? Yeah, I think it leaves at 11 to fly out. So I'll have a, I'll have a meal there at, you know, 9.30 or 10, which is really, uh, let me do some quick math here. It's, uh, if it's 10 o'clock, it's 1, it's 1 p.m. Eastern. So that's around the normal time that I eat anyway. And then I'll just sort of fly fasted again because I think airplane food is, disgusting. And mm. then I might have like some nuts with me on the plane. Um, sometimes I'll pack sardines if I'm, if I'm really a keener. Did you do anything different when you, when you flew to Italy this summer or over to Europe? Did you, did you fast all the way over? Well, let me think about this. We flew in the evening. So we flew out, I think it was 9 PM. So mm. I had already eaten that day. Um, so I, yeah, I guess I did, fl- I flew fasted, even though that's against my normal rules. Cause when I fly West to East, I will typically eat. F- oh no, that's still, that still makes sense. Cause I ate in the morning. I ha- sort of had my normal meal and then flew fasted over to, um, to Italy. And then we just had, we got there at like nine, I think in the morning, 10 in the morning, something like that. And then we went to find breakfast. All right. And when do you do longer fasts? I typically do longer fasts, like a three, I, I like a three day fast for me. I've, I've experimented with five day, attempted a seven day, couldn't do it. Three days is the number, like the, the, the time that really works well for me. So I typically do that for around once a quarter. So I'll do it once every three months. 
And again, it depends like how much stress, how much travel, you know, how my kids are sleeping overnight. And I always do it and we'll, we'll go into a deeper dive, but I always do it the week of my period. So when my estrogen levels are really low, my progesterone, that stimulator of my appetite that's, that has tanked because I'm uh, menstruating, that's the best time for me. Yeah. It's, yeah. It so is. It's yeah. so much easier. Mm-hmm. All right. So because I'm a lifelong learner, just like you, I'm going to use every opportunity for the rest of my life to ask you questions. And this AMA is no exception. I'm going to ask you my very own, my very own question. So we're both mummies and Mm. I would like to know, how do you explain fasting to your children and can we have them do it with us? Oh, that's a great question. So I'll tell you how, how, I'll tell you how we do it in our house. And then I have some thoughts because I know you're beautiful daughters as well. So I have three boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're young. So I have uh, 14, uh, nine and seven. So the way that I've explained it to them, cause I never have, I never eat in the morning with them. Like they, I make them their breakfast before school, but I'm having water or an espresso or something. And I will say to them, mommy's not hungry in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I will say to them is mommy doesn't need to, need to eat as often as you do, you are growing boys. You need to grow, you know, you need to grow up to be tall and strong and you need your brains to grow and you need your bones to grow. Uh, but mommy doesn't need that because mommy's brain is fully formed. Um, hopefully I'll still continue to put information in that brain, but it's still, you know, it's, it's the size that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And my bones are fully formed. Like I'm not growing taller anymore. So that's how I explain it to them. I often will, uh, so today they're home. They have, a, they have a PD day today. And in the morning when I made them their breakfast, they both said, oh, I'm not hungry right now. So I will often follow them a little bit because I know my kids, when they're hungry, they're hungry and they need food right now. So I didn't force breakfast on them uh, this morning, but I did make it and then allowed them to consume it when, when they were ready. Right. And they're young and they've grown up around you fasting too. Like this is something that you haven't just started doing later in their life. Like they're just used to you doing, this is a normal thing for, for them to see now. Yeah. And Sebastian, my young one, my seven-year-old would be like, mommy's fasting right now. She doesn't want food. Like sometimes, you know, Andreas would be like, try this grilled cheese. It's so good. And I'm like, mommy, mommy doesn't want to eat. And Sebi will be like, it's, you know, it's, she's fasting. She does she's not eating. So they know that mm-hmm. mommy's not eating. And I have it a little bit easier because I have boys, right? So yeah, they're not they're not focused on what other people are eating. They're just interested in their in their own plate and their own uh, refeed. Yeah, exactly. And they don't have the societal <laughs> they don't have the societal you know pressures of looking. At, I mean, I guess they do. That that's not fair to say. I guess that they do have a certain pressure to look a certain way. But you know, as women, I mean, I can speak to my own experience, and I know that you can speak to this as well. We have a certain there's a certain expectation for a woman to look a certain way. And there's, there's a potential to abuse the concept and the application of fasting in, in women, especially in teenage girls. So I think that, you know, for someone who's raising girls, I think that the same explanation is still appropriate. Like mommy's not growing anymore. And the more I eat, I'm probably going to grow horizontally and not vertically. Like you're going to probably grow vertically, not me. Um, but I would give them a little bit more color. Like if it was an older girl, things around brain development and frontal lobe development, you know, those things, your brain doesn't really mature until you're about, you know, somewhere between 22 and 25. And that's mainly your, your reasoning, your executive decision maker, which is your frontal lobe. So I would give them a bit more color in terms of, you know, 
you still need to grow these areas of your body or else you're not going to have, you know, the executive reasoning that you should and the, you know, the neural connections that you should, and you still want to be growing taller, right? Like what girl doesn't want to be, you know, a few inches taller. 5'10", like Cindy Crawford. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So that's kind of how I would approach it with girls and anybody who is at the very minimum under 18, but I would, you know, I'm a bit more of a conservative. So I'd probably say somewhere between 22 and 25, because that's when we see skeletal maturity, you know, frontal lobe, like the brain really matures around that sort of 25 year mark. I would not be engaging in any sort of fasting protocol under that, unless there was some, unless we're talking about BMIs where they're, you know, or their excess adiposity or they're obese, where they do need to be reducing their weight. But for a normal kid under 25, I really wouldn't be touching it. What about time restricted eating? Because they're the same in the morning. They don't feel hungry. Is it, is that an okay thing for for children, a time restricted eating or um, should they just stay away from that altogether and just do the standard three meals, three meals? Yeah, I would be more fluid with it. Like th- yeah. this morning, you know, I-, I think there's something to be said about intuitive eating and becoming attuned to when you are hungry and being able to distinguish when you're hungry versus when you're thirsty, because those things often feel exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So my kids, you know, where they are right now, they like three meals and they like snacks, but they are growing, right? Like the the people who, like the populations that need to be growing are children and pregnant women, right? So those people need to be eating more often because they are driving some of those growth pathways. You know, if you, if maybe one of your daughters was like, I'm not hungry in the morning, as long as the caloric intake that she's taking is is sufficient during the day, I don't really have a problem with uh, a TRE protocol for, for, for a teenage girl or, or, you know, as long as she's eating, as long as there's, you know, she's able to attune to how hungry, if she's hungry, that she's making sure that she's getting sustenance, like the appropriate amount of nutrient uh, density in her diet. Love that. Super helpful. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I think it leads to a re- another question, which is who should not fast? Yeah. So anyone kind of under, uh, you know, that 25 for, I mean, 18 at a very minimum, but like I said, I like that tw- between 22 and 25, anything under than that, I wouldn't really be engaging in that history of eating disorders. So disordered eating, we know that this is, there's a potential for fasting to be used as a method of control. So I would say anyone with a history of eating disorders, someone who is malnourished or underweight uh, should not be fasting. Pregnancy, if you're pregnant, you need to be eating, you are growing another life uh, mm-hmm. in you. So obviously my hope is that you're eating good quality foods, but maybe that's not the best time to be undergoing fasting either. Amazing. So all of these questions came in and are on our, in our wonderful uh, Facebook community. It's, Mm -hmm. I love being part of it. Uh, I'm just not a fan of this self-help self self-care. It's all about community for me. And I think if we want to be better what better place than people that want to be better together. Mm -hmm. So that is at a better show.co slash Facebook. They can, they can join there. And uh, actually we're going to be posting, right? We're going to be, we're going to do a hormone uh, episode. We're going to post in the group. Yeah. So we're going to post. So just like we did for, for this episode uh, where we said, just hit me up with your fasting questions. Uh, This is going to be open for obviously both men and women. So 
all your hormone questions and it can be low testosterone. It can be PCOS. It can be Hashimoto's. It can be too low, little estrogen, too much estrogen, anything, or even just if you don't know how to classify it, you know, any signs and symptoms that you are suspecting that may be due to hormonal derangement or dysfunction, we will have the question up in the better group and we would just love your uh, feedback. So it's a free group, right? We don't like you. It's anyone who has a Facebook account can be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, like if this is well received, I would love to do these uh, at least at very least quarterly, um, but more so if, if there's demand for it. So. Thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Stephanie. I've loved oh. any, any any reason to spend more time with you, but if I'm doing it when I'm learning, I just, I appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Major. I love you too. I love you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, Uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.